Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part two of an afternoon's conversation with Taylor Colbert. Taylor is a PhD candidate in theater and performance at the Graduate Center at CUNY at the City University of New York. She's writing her dissertation on 17th century animal performances in Europe, looking specifically at how cultural narratives about animals shaped the ways that humans and animals responded to one another. In last week's episode, we began with stag hunts, oddly enough, which took us to some surprising revelations about animal intelligence. It was a conversation that had many interesting twists and turns. We talked about animals that were put on trial, and then Taylor described the challenge of finding accounts from the 17th century of the relationship that performers developed with the animals that they trained. I thought that opened up a really interesting opportunity for Taylor to talk to Dominique about the artists and trainers who had performed in the Cavalia shows. It's been a few years since Cavalia was on tour, so Dominique began by describing the show. In traditional circuses, horses are worked in the round, always within reach of a long whip. In Cavalia, they wanted to break away from that tradition of the superiority of humans over animals to portray a relationship that was built around friendship. We ended just as Dominique was about to share some stories from the show describing the relationship that develops between the artists and their equine performing partners. Here you are in this time capsule. So what would you want to ask of Dominique about the relationship that performers have with their animals? Because that's what you're writing about. Yeah, I mean, I would love to hear, like, what are some of the stories that they tell about their animals? Well, you know, some of the stories, I think that they're real. Like, I remember, you know, when an artist comes with an animal alone on stage in front of 2,000 people, they go through something together. And there's all, all kinds of ways that you could describe that. You might want to say if you were strictly trying to, to, to use scientific, more, more accurate or factual language, you could say, well, you know, the animal perceives the audience as a threat. And so he's going to really look at his trainer for security. You know, and so he's, he's not going to go away, do some some crazy stuff. He's going to stick to his trainer because he feels like, what's that? You could transform that into a very romantic story. Um, but uh, I think that's real, you know, because they are. And then, of course, there's all the stories where the animal is not doing what he's supposed to do and how the the artist or trainer reacts in front of the public versus in, during a rehearsal. And you know, I, I know all people who compete know the difference when they're with their dogs in the ring versus when they're with their dogs outside the ring. But for us, the advantage that the artists had was that it wasn't a big deal for us when the animals didn't do what they were supposed to do because it was part of the show. And, you know, we had this, this one artist, the main, the one we call the horse whisperer. He was really good at playing with this because, uh, you know, there was this one horse that uh, didn't like to rear because there was a uh, one act where they would go all around the, well, first they would um, lie down and then go all around the stage. And then they would rear the four of them, the four stallions together. And this horse was kind of chubby a little bit and he didn't like to rear very much, but he was smart. He knew the whole chain, you know, lie down, go around and then 
uh, rear. So he would stay lying down. <laughs> he would, because they were supposed to lie down, then sit, then go around and then rear. So he would either stay lie down or most of the time he would sit. He would act when the trainer would ask to sit, he would do that. But then he would stay like that. And everybody else was like ready to go do the round and then the rear. And he would, and so the other one was playing, like showing him his watch. And, and then he would just leave him there, go around. The three others would rear. And once the rear was done, Ites would just, you know, stand up because it was done. He was okay. So, and for me, the nights where he would do the whole sequence and not just stay sitting down was really boring. I thought, oh no, he did it tonight. But I loved it. I really loved it when he, and the, of course the public was adoring this horse and they would recognize him backstage because there were some visits backstage. Oh, he's the one that didn't want to uh, to go around. So, you know, you can, and this was actually accurate because he, he didn't want to rear, you know, um, but you could, Yes, you could imagine all kinds of stories mm -hmm. that people could say about that, you know. So anyway, this, the Liberty Acts for sure were very fertile, um, you know, for for stories because yes. you see the personality of the horse. When you have a quadrille, you know, they're kind of all doing the same thing. And so right. The horses, when they were ridden, was not as but there, certainly the relationship between you know, the writers and the, the artists, especially in the more dangerous stuff, because mm. there was some stunts also kind of, you know, Roman writing and, um, uh, you know, there were different disciplines in the show. So, you know, some of them were actually dangerous. And so that the team has to be very tight, you know, because if the horse does something, the, mm -hmm. the human can be in real danger. And so... And you know the the for for sure these artists they really it, it was their life I mean so they loved the horses they spent all their time with horses that's all they talked about all the time it was about horses even when they were off so they were real horse people to the heart. Well, you've seen this I'm sure in the summer performances of at the Lipizzan yeah. facility. I'm sure you've seen this the passion that people have when they're. Yeah in that kind of a life. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was really, I mean, I think the world I was in was probably more of like dressage world people mm -hmm. as opposed to more like circus theater performance people. But yeah, definitely, mm -hmm. you know, horse people are are intense. <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah. Yes, that, that would be a very accurate description. So as you've been doing this research, what has surprised you in what you've been discovering? I think one of the things that really surprised me, um, and I'm I'm talking mostly about the the French hunting manual because that's the chapter I'm working on writing right now. So that's sort of at the top of my my mind. Um, but what really surprised me at them was just like the depth of the level of, of attention they paid to this deer and the stags. There's 32 chapters in this book dedicated specifically to the stag hunt. They go into detail about the um, what where the stags might be found in different seasons and why they're there and um, what their coats might look like in different seasons, what their antlers will look like in different seasons, what their behavior is like when they're breeding. And, and then they go into all these also sort of old like anecdotes from older hunting manuals that they don't always say whether they think it's true or not. But for example, there's this story that they start the chap one of the chapters with that's on like the nature and intelligence of the stag. And they start the chapter with this anecdote about how when a stag is old, he will go find um, like a, a cave or a hole where a serpent or a snake is living and he'll blow into it with his nostrils until the snake comes out. Then he'll kill the snake and eat it. And the venom will go through his body and renew him and rejuvenate him. And I mean, it's all connected to sort of like the humoral, bloodletting, purging kind of stuff. But it's also just this really kind of wild anecdote. They're like, yeah, so these guys, stags are really smart. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things you want to know about that, in your, yeah. such as. So if they observed that in the stag, assuming that they did, did that mean that humans were then 
uh, rushing off to these caves to entice the serpents to come out so they too could be rejuvenated. I mean, it's just bizarre. I don't have any evidence that humans were doing that. Um, and I don't actually have any evidence that they, they actually believed that stags were doing that in the 17th century, but it's okay. certainly in the book. Um, and it's not, it's not really, it doesn't have any qualifiers, qualifiers around it. It's just like, this is an anecdote. Do what you will with it. So it's mm -hmm. like, I can't, it's, I can't really tell what they mm -hmm. actually thought of it. Um, but they also have this, this a, a similar in the same part, um, in the same chapter, they have this other anecdote about how when stags or when, when deer have to cross a body of water, they will do so as a group and they'll do it as a team. So they'll each rest their head on the hindquarters of the one in front of them. And the strongest swimmer will go first and they'll all cross a body of water that way. And they have, I mean, there's a lot of stuff about the stags also hiding in the water that they, I, this, I, this can't be true. I don't think this is true. <laughs> they say that the stag would go in the water and submerge itself so that only its nostrils were sticking out so that the, the hounds couldn't find the scent. Okay. And then it would stay there for hours. Like a submarine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so some of these things, some of these anecdotes that I find, it's sort of like, okay, this is in this book. And it's hard to tell what they actually thought of these stories they were telling. Um, so like part of the work I'm trying to do is like, what what purpose are these stories serving in this hunting manual? Why is this in here? <laughs> you know? I suppose one thing you would might want to do then is to connect with modern day hunters and biologists who mm -hmm. study behavior of deer to see what is the basis for some of these stories. Yeah. Yeah, I know that would be really interesting. Yeah, I would love to love to hear what biologists or or hunter contemporary hunters think of those stories. Although I do think that the the deer they were hunting in Europe are not the same deer we have in the US. I think it's a different yeah, a different type. But yeah, be really curious. <laughs> But probably a lot of the things that they're mentioning, because we, whether you're in agreement with hunting or not, hunters usually spend a lot of time observing their animal, and they are usually pretty knowledgeable about the, the animal. And so, you know, maybe the interpretation was not always what we would say today, but, I, you know, probably a lot of you know, even the flute. I mean, I know, um, I know a um, cattle breeder who, who plays music to his cows and they love it. So I'm, you know, it's not surprising for me. I've seen cows. I've seen a YouTube about a saxophonist, I think, who just, you know, is on, I think it's in England, but I'm not sure. And he just plays the saxophone and all the cows yeah. come to him. Have you seen this one? No, you haven't seen that. Anyway, I guess it's curiosity. I'm not sure what it is. You know, I'm sure biologists could tell us what it is, but um, he's he's on the other side of the fence, so nothing can happen to him. But um, what other aesthetic? Because um, uh, you said they they thought this the the stag had aesthetic. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how you yeah. said it. Yeah, I mean it's, it's seems or... that way, and I mean they talk about um, how the stag enjoys it will be like entertained by seeing another beast hooked up to a cart and pulling a, a cart. And so he'll stand and watch. Oh, okay. And, and okay. so it's, you know, it's interesting because right, right. I'm sure that like this story emerged out of a stag actually standing it there and happen. watching a cart go by. Yeah, yeah. And then they're like, oh, but he's enjoying it because he's not yeah, yeah. it. Right. So they ascribe this whole story oh, to him. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> That, right. that he's somehow entertained by this spectacle. He's free and the other animal is yes, not free. Yes. And there's also like an, an entertainment quality to it, I think, that the the stag is enjoying this spectacle as entertainment, which is kind of an interesting parallel mm -hmm. to the hunt itself, which is also a spectacle that the humans are, are participating in for entertainment. So again, a, another sort of, you know, appreciation for the intelligence of the stag they had mm -hmm. yeah and one of the really important things for the um 
seven, the hunt in the 17th century is that they you you chase only one stag. So in the morning, they would send out uh, a group of hunters who would go identify where different stags were. And they would observe the stags and where they were, where they were located, and they would collect their droppings. And then they would go back and make a report to the king or the highest ranking aristocrat. And they would present the drop. There's this whole ceremony on it. Like they present the droppings to the king in their hunting horn. <laughs> and they present the droppings to the king. And then the king will choose which one. And they'll tell him about like what the stag looked like, what how old they thought it was, where it was. And then the um, highest ranking aristocrat will decide which one they're actually going to pursue. Um, oh, and the hunters in the morning would have a dog with them oh. when they went to look for the the stags. And the part of the role of the dog was the dog had to be able to identify that stag again, the same one. And so the that becomes one. a big part of the hunt and sort of the, you know, a, a lot of the sort of discourse around it is that it's this battle of intellect or battle of wits between the hunting party and the stag. And they talk a lot about how the stag will try to trick them. And he'll either run with a bunch of other stags to try and confuse mm-hmm. the dogs, or he will, you know, go join up with another stag and then split off so that they can't find him. And he's always trying to lose, try, or trying to cross the water or cross a really dry area mm-hmm. so that they can't track him. Um, or he'll double back on himself. And so there's all this stuff about, and like the hunters and the dogs, they really, really emphasize that the dogs, the older dogs, the dogs have done this a lot. You have to listen to them because they're the ones who will know which which stag was the one they were pursuing originally. Whereas the younger dogs will just chase anything. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a hunter. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan. Um, Neither but am I. <laughs> it's really interesting to me that oh. there is this whole discourse of respect and sort of honor about how the game mm-hmm. is played. Yeah. Uh, in yeah but what it, what is what was of interest to me was where do the ideas that have come down to us that we have inherited where where do they come from mm-hmm. so what were people thinking about animals and the relationships of people and animals what were they thinking about 300 years ago 400 years ago etc um, so in that the period that you are studying, what what have you gleaned about the relationship of people and and beasts? To use the yeah, I mean, in you know, I think that like in so many ways, it's just such a different world for that relationship to exist in because most of us, even even horse people, most of us don't live with their horses, except for Krista, my sister, <laughs> who lives in their past. Um, but you know, even among them, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but like most of us don't live with, with our anim- uh, animals, except for maybe dogs or cats. And in the 17th century, people really lived with their livestock. Like they, you know, shared buildings with them. They they were very much ubiquitous in a way that they're not today. And so I think in some ways there's a greater appreciation among sort of, well, I think that there's a more widespread appreciation for the individuality of animals um, that among a sort of a general population today we don't have. And an appreciation for sort of the different characteristics of different species and different, you know, types within a species. There's just a lot more also, sort of exposure. They also raised animals for uh, consumption. So most yeah. of us these days uh, do not have the direct experience of slaughtering the animals that they have raised. Um, right. you know, I know that certainly there are many, many people who do have that experience and who would consider that to be a more humane way of if they're going to consume uh, animals that it's more humane to raise their own than it is to, you know, the industrial farming, so it's, so to speak. But most of us do not have that direct experience. So that is definitely changing how we regard. Most people uh, don't want to have that. Most people don't want to have it. You know that that we are very separated from death really mm-hmm. we're separated from the 
know, the bloody part of, of life. And that that definitely has an impact on our aesthetic sense and our willingness to do, to participate in certain activities. It's going to have an influence on, on our philosophical outlook. It, it has to. Uh, so in an era where most people were involved in agriculture uh, and where most people would have had a much more direct involvement in raising and slaughtering animals, where the way that people were treated was not gentle and kind. What is your sense of the experience that, that horses would have had? Yeah. Um, I mean, horses, horses were always sort of set apart from other, other types of creatures. Um, they were always a status. There was, there has, I think, at least in this time period I'm studying, the horses were, they had status. They were different from a pig. They were considered really highly intelligent. And, but I mean, they, um, you know, when, when a horse um, died, they fed it to the dogs. I mean, they were also very pragmatic. (laughs) Yeah, pragmatic. I mean, they used their bodies for work. And then when they couldn't work anymore, they used them for food for other animals. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think that horses did hold a special place within even, you know, birds and beasts and fishes. They were, they did stand out even then. And would there have been a distinction made between the farm horses, the beasts of burden, mm-hmm. and the the horses in that were being trained for prestige you know, in the yeah mm-hmm. yes in the classical arts. Yes, I mean the horses in the courts were that were being trained, you know, in classical dressage. They certainly were of a different, you know, they were really highly, really deliberately bred, really highly sought after. Um, they were given as gifts between different royal parties of Europe. You know, most of the courts had their own stud and they would exchange horses as gifts. So, yeah, they were, I mean, they were really highly valued in a different way. And horses, they helped, they helped win wars, you know, so they were very uh, politically too, they, they were important. Yeah, yeah, they were politically very important in, you know, as horses that could carry someone into war, but also as as um, commodities that could be exchanged in diplomatic ways mm. as well. Yeah, but the sort of the general populace of horses, I do think that they are still set apart from some other animals. Um, and you did have to have a certain amount of resources to have a horse. Yes. It's not like everybody had a horse. Um, but horses, they were also really, you know, they were the means of transportation. So people rented out horses to ride from one town to the next. Um, and I'm sure those horses' lives were not great. Mm. Um, and there is there is a book that has a lot of charts about, like, the... I can send all of these books I'm mentioning that I can't remember the titles of to you later, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but there's a book um, on sort of the history of, of horses in Europe that has a lot of really interesting charts about... Um, the author tracked sort of their expected life expectancies. Um, and he has all these really interesting documents showing what life expectancies would have been for different kinds of horses and things like that. But they were, the long? life expectancies were low. They oh. were low. I think they were um, 15 would have been really, really old, even for a really expensive, well-maintained horse. Um, wow. 10 was pretty old. They didn't yeah. live long. So, And we've definitely inherited that, the sense of, that an old horse is in his teens. And it's only very recently that with modern medicine and good horse care that we've seen horses living into their 20s and 30s and where that's becoming the norm. But I know growing up that, you know, if somebody had a, a, a horse that was in his teens, it was like, oh, that's an old horse. And that's a young horse. It is. It's yeah. a very young horse. And I, re- I remember reading, and this oh, it just really stayed with me, this monograph that was written in, I want to say, 1840s. And it was looking at the, the coach horses, the 
I want to say bus horses, uh, that were used in England. And these horses pulled a very a, a, this large wagon that was basically the equivalent of our modern buses. And so people would, would get on and they would go a stop or two or three or four, however, whatever, and the coach would stop at each one of the stops, just like a, a bus does. So the this wagon with all of the weight of the people on it would stop, and then the horses would have to get it going again, and then they would have to stop it, and then they would have to get it going again. So it was very hard work, much harder than once you've got it going, you just keep it going. Mm. And they talked about most of the horses that they used came from Ireland. So they were draft crosses, mostly mares. I don't, that was interesting, that they were mm. mostly mares. They went into work when they were four, and they were dead by the time they were seven. Wow. Yeah. They died in harness. Mm. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Just really grim. This this is why Black Beauty was written. Mm-hmm. You know, Black Beauty was not was not a fairy tale. Yeah, this is, this, that was the life that horses experienced. And I mean, you work at a horse rescue. You volunteer at a horse rescue, yeah. so you know that that this continues into the present day, where you see, uh, and you know, like when you, this is why the the clicker training is so important because. We need to build safety nets under horses. And that's really yes. how, I, how I think of it. You know, like the, the, in the, the circus that you talked about, where you have the, the trapeze artists, they have a safety net underneath. So if they do fall, they're caught by the safety net. And with our horses, what we want to build is a safety net under the horse. And every time you cut a corner, or you get on when the horse was saying, you know, not today, please, please, not today. I can't, I can't take care of you today. And you, and you push through that and you get on and the horse throws you and you end up breaking your hip. That safety net, you might as well just take a big pair of shears and go snip, 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 because you've just really cut major strands of that safety net that's under the horse. And we know that in so many instances, when people become afraid and they say, well, you know, I can't keep this horse anymore. I'm going to send him off to a dealer. And, you know, someone else will take this horse on. Well, that's the Black Beauty saga where Ginger ends up pulling the carriage in London and dies in harness. You know, yeah. the, that, that road down where they're they're in the pipeline that's going to slaughter, and if and if they're really lucky, they end up at a horse rescue instead of being starved or or ending up on a truck to Mexico. Yeah, so these, these safety nets. What we're doing with clicker training is we are building strong safety nets under the horses, and when we start teaching the foundation lessons and teaching the universals, you know the first phase of clicker training is let's introduce the horse to clicker training. We use those six foundation lessons to do that. And we're using those lessons to introduce the horse to the foundation, to the, the way that clicker training works. And in the process, we are building really great ground manners. We have a horse that backs up when you ask him to back up. Well, that's a huge safety feature. We have a horse who, instead of getting all high-headed and and, and, and anxious, if you ask him to drop his head, he'll drop his head. Huge safety feature. If you fold your hands, he'll go into stillness. Huge safety feature. You can walk around him with your pockets bulging with treats, and he'll take his head away from your pocket. Huge safety feature. And then we move into the universals, you know, meaning all those things that horses need to know, like foot care and having a halter put on them and you know, your, your work in the rescue, you know all these horses that come in that you can't take it for granted that you can walk right up to them and, and put a halter on. You can't walk no. right up to them and ask them to stand still to be groomed or to have their feet cared for. Those, those safety net behaviors are not in place. 
but what we are giving, the gift that we're giving to these to the horses that we work with is we're, we're building that safety net. So when people are looking at the clicker training and, and they really follow through with the progression of the lessons, what they end up with is a horse that's really easy to be around. You know, my horses can live at liberty in the barn, the doors are open, the barn aisle, they have free access up and down. They can go in and out wherever they please. And when people come to visit, it's not dangerous. They don't have to be clicker trainers. They don't have to know anything. It's not dangerous. I think too, Alex, what the, the, the big difference um, with the clicker training community is also the philosophy, you know, the, the cultural beliefs that the, the behaviors are caused by the environment and not, is that the cause is not inside the animal. Right. That makes a big difference too. You know, it's not a bad animal. It's just something in the environment that caused the behavior. So I think, and you know, it's, it's what, what you're. That's, that's not necessarily a mindset that people understand when they start clicker training. It is something that we, through interaction with the uh, positive reinforcement community, you begin to appreciate. But I'm sure many people who become curious about clicker training are not necessarily understanding that that's the case, that, that they come in with the cultural biases that they've grown up with. And some of those cultural biases would put the, you know, it is a bad horse. Mm. You know, it's a bad child. It's a naughty, it's a naughty child. It's a mischievous child. You know, all those labels get attached. That's part of our culture. Yeah, but pretty soon, you know, when you start to, to learn that consequence drives behavior, that's, yes. you're on the path. You know, you're, yes, on, you are. you're on the path you to discover that uh, behaviors are not caused by something inside the animal. They're caused by something outside in the environment. And so, you know, all these cultural biases that you are studying right now, Taylor, and that are everywhere, you know, it's everywhere around us, all these biases, cultural biases. But once you start to look more at the science, once you start to clicker train and understand that, you know, the influence and the environment on the behavior, that's huge for the welfare of the animal. It is, but we can take, you know, you can, you can spin things in so many different directions. And what we're doing is we're spinning them, you know, we're, we're, we're spinning the science in a direction of animal welfare. Mm -hmm. You mean you could spin the science in the opposite way? Is that what you're saying? If you wanted yeah. to, you could find a way to justify some violence by the science? Well, I, I could train an animal to, well, one of the early uses of the positive reinforcement training that uh, Skinner developed during the war was to train pigeons to peck and keep keep a line aligned mm -hmm. and so that they could be used to guide a missile to its target. I follow you. Yeah, yeah. You could use it um, not for the welfare of the animal, but very yeah. efficiently to train yeah. the animal. I get you. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here we are, you know, worried about the side effects of negative reinforcement and punishment. But some people would say, I don't care, if, you know, if it works and punishment can work. I don't care about the side effects. You know, if my dog becomes really aggressive, he's not going to be aggressive with me because I'm going to punish him in a way that there's no way he's going to be aggressive with me. But he's going to guard my house like no other dog. Yeah. We are weaving the science around the around the heart mm. because that you know the the core ethics guide our training mm. and we know from science that i mean this is the great philosophical debate in terms of scientific discoveries you look at 
the CRISPR, the, the gene splicing that they can now do. You can, you, can, you can envision just incredible things that you can do with this technology in terms of disease prevention and birth defects and so on and eliminating some of the genetic, these horrific, horrific genetic diseases. Mm. But you can also envision it being abused mm -hmm. horrifically. Yeah, absolutely. And this, I, I think, is why what Taylor is looking at becomes really interesting, because what is that, the, the philosophical basis for the culture in which we uh, found ourselves uh, living in? You know, what is, and, and we talk about in the horse training that some of the correction-based training that has become popular over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, whatever, that, you know, it was, I want to say it was an easy sell because it was a cultural match yeah. with the dominant culture that, mm. that getting louder, escalating pressure, it's what we do, mm -hmm. you know, that's, uh, and, and I don't want to sound political, but, you know, like the United States is really good at that. That's, we have the biggest army in that the world has ever seen. We're good at that. That's our culture. Mm. So it's an easy sell. It's a match with the dominant culture. Whereas clicker training is not a match with the dominant culture. It's really not about changing the, the mainstream. It truly is about creating our own stream. And that's what we're doing. Now, we're not trying to, you know, fight upstream against the dominant culture. We're not trying to convince somebody who, who is deeply entrenched in a very different philosophical way of viewing the world to say, no, 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 what you, the way you think is, is totally 17th century. Come, though I'm beginning to discover that maybe it's, it's not. It's very, very 18th century. <laughs> stop, stop thinking that way. You, you're, you're looking at the wrong philosopher there. You know, it's, it's not that. It's saying, all right, we found this really cool way of communicating with animals. And we found this really cool way of teaching them and creating relationships that we really, really, really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And so we're creating our own stream. And if you want to come and join us, come on in. The water's fine. And what is fun and what's been fun for me over the years is to see that what started out as a little trickle, like you almost see, you know, up in the mountains and there's this little trickle of water coming, you know, mountain stream. And then as it moves further and further down the mountain and, and it joins other tributaries and it gets larger and larger and larger. And so all these other people like yourself and, and like, like Taylor, they've, you've all had your own little you know, mountain trickle, and we're joining up, and the stream is getting larger and larger and larger all the time, and it's becoming a really wide stream in and of itself, which is exciting. And it's evolving; it's still evolving. You know, it's I, I was evolving. I was watching something the other day. It wasn't that old. It was um, a video from maybe five-year-old video. It's not that old, and you know. And it was a good trainer. It was a good clicker trainer. But constructional training was not as big then. And it's it's a big thing, you know, it changed a lot of things that, that you know, that we're focusing a lot on constructional training now. And this part, you know, was not there. And I thought, you know, this person is limp is is lumping. There was the use of LR of, of least reinforcing scenarios or timeouts in there, you yeah. know. And looking at that, you know, I thought, oh my God, you know, just in five years, it, it's a little bit outdated. It's, you know, three, 80% of it was good. But, you know, we're evolving and it's great. It is great. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think that's been one of the fun elements of this is to see. How many more strategies do we have for teaching things? And the 
I'll say the sophistication of the concepts that we're using, even though, you know, when you start to look at something like the constructional training, it's very simple. Break things down into small component parts. I mean, that's, that's been a key element of certainly my work forever, but I think the, what, the, what bringing in Gold Diamond's work does is it provides a real clarity of language that makes it very makes this idea very accessible. But also, you know, the, this whole idea of building the skills, um, not being so outcome oriented and building the yes. skills, maybe in other contexts and bringing that back then into whatever you're trying to teach. It wasn't as emphasized before as it is now, and it's very useful and makes a big yes. difference in, in our tenure. Loopy training wasn't talked about that much, maybe, well, five years ago, yes, but maybe not 10 years ago, it wasn't really. So clean loops for me made me make huge um, uh, progress in my training. Yeah. And without that tool, you know, mm, everything takes longer to train. And these ideas are spreading because we're communicating with one another. Mm -hmm. you know, so that we're, you know, we're here today having this conversation and people are listening in. So, you know, the, the ideas and the training get passed around and we, as a community, we get better and better all the time. And it goes back to you know, this idea of stepping stones where you never want to get mad at the stepping stones because they get you from where you were to where you are. And some of the, like, some of the early, um, well, just the idea that a horse is orienting to a target. And we thought, wow, my horse is so smart. He oriented to a target, but it was so brand new. When it when you know the first time we went out to the barn and held a target up and a horse oriented to it, it's like wow, that's so brand new. And you think about now all the things that we have discovered you can do with targeting mm -hmm. because we've had so many people exploring it mm -hmm. and adding their creativity to it. Mm -hmm. And then you you see somebody who's who's shaped. Uh, some really elegant piece of training and you go, oh, that's really cool. How'd they do that? I want to do that. Mm. And that's how it grows. You know, I used to think about people would say, so I've got this horse with a problem. Won't load on a trailer. How do I get my horse on the trailer? And, and I think, well, from a correction-based training model, we've had, what, 2,000, 3,000 years of, 4,000 years of figuring out how to make horses do things. Yeah. And we've gotten really good at it. Many of the horses that were living in the era that you are studying would have gone into battle. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine. I can't, just can't imagine the kind of training that would go into. Well, maybe there wasn't much training. They just went. Well, but even, you know, what it takes to have a human, never mind a horse going into the kind of warfare in which they would have been engaged, you know, with and knowing what happens to, to, to bodies when you are doing hand-to-hand -hand with bayonets and so on. It's just, I, I cannot imagine. So, you know, in terms of we've had, we've had this long history of figuring out how to make, whether it's a horse or a human, how to make individuals do what we want. Starting back when I first was exploring clicker training, I started in 93. And so when people said, well, so how do you get a horse to do, you know, whatever? I was like, well, I've got some ideas, but give us a few years and we'll have a lot more. And that's a big part of the training is just, yeah, we, we, we've got two or three strategies that I can think of right now. And they'll probably work and the, you know we're going to break the training down into smaller component parts we're going to look at what we want the horse to do not the unwanted behavior the constructional training the language of it was actually there right from the beginning when you look at it I love the clarity of the gold diamond four questions I think that those are just wonderfully 
powerful for organizing your thoughts. But we still, it's like, all right, I, I, I want more strategies. So if the horse doesn't load on the trailer when you uh, offer him a target to touch, what are some of the other options that you could come up with? And when we look back over that span of time, what we're seeing is more people have asked that question of their horses and they have come up with creative solutions that we can all learn from and that enrich the entire positive reinforcement community. One of the huge advantages that we have as positive reinforcement trainers is we're not just looking at horses, we're looking at other species. So we can look at what the dog trainers are doing and go, oh, what a clever idea, let me borrow that. We can look at the marine mammal training or the exotic animal training, like the whole idea of starting with protective contact. I borrowed from the zoos. Like, that's a really good idea. Let's put the horse behind a barrier to start out. So let me borrow an idea from the zoos that will be a benefit to the horses. So this is a huge advantage that we have within the positive reinforcement community is that we're looking at what everybody else is doing in that community, not just what people within our own species are doing. And I think that enriches us all. I think that's very unique in the history of, of training as far as, you know, as far as I can tell, but especially in the history of horse training, it seems to me that that's really quite unique to be looking at what other people are doing with other species. And like, I think one thing that's so unique about the positive reinforcement training is that there's so much room for creativity. It's not prescriptive. It's not, here's how you do it. Here's what's written in the book. Here's step one, two, three. It's here are these principles and then you can take them and apply them in so many different ways. And I think that's really unique. The creativity of it is really unique in, I think, the history of training. That, that's a great statement, actually. And it also is one of the great strengths. And it relates to the, uh, is the problem in the animal? Or is it in the way that we're trying to ask the animal? And when you think of the problem being in the animal, then we blame the animal. So if I am a trainer in a more traditional, conventional mindset, and I have a way to train, and I encounter a horse that it doesn't respond in the way that I want that uh, horse to respond, he doesn't stand up and rear. <laughs> he right. stays lying down. <laughs> My goodness. So, so there must be something wrong with that horse. And if... and what I'm going to do is I'm going to shout louder. Mm. You know, I'm going to use the tool, that narrow tool set that I have to say, stand up horse, do what I'm telling you to do. Well, I'm going to make it more discomfortable, uncomfortable yeah. to not, to, to lie down than to do yeah. the rearing. Even if they're both uncomfortable, I'm going to make the one I want. The, the horse is to fit into my way of teaching. In schools, we see this. Mm. So the child is to fit into the way that we present material. If they're dyslexic, well, too bad. They, they have to conform to the way that we present material. And if they don't, then the consequences will be aversive. And so whether we're talking about people or we're talking about our horses, the individual is to fit the program. And when it doesn't fit the program in terms of the horses, then they're the problem horse that's going off to the problem horse clinic, or they're on the truck to the dealers. Whereas with the clicker training, we're saying, oh, this way of, of explaining it isn't making sense to you. Well, let me go have a cup of tea and think of a different way of explaining it to you. And that's at the core of the clicker training. There is always, always, always another way to teach every behavior. Always. And I just have to become creative enough to explain to my horse what it is that I want. And if, if I keep encountering difficulties, then where I need to be looking is, can my horse physically do what I'm asking? And usually what you find is there is a, a, some kind of health issue, physical issue that says, you know, I, I would love to do what you're asking me to do. I just can't do it. 
can't do it. And you know, we probably have a lot of ancestors to thank for how we think today, because I think amongst all the different historical current, there has always been some disagreement about how humans saw animals. Yes. You know, so Descartes was on that end, but Voltaire and Rousseau were on a completely different, uh, they, you know, they thought animals were intelligent and that they had emotion. Um, I read that Leonardo da Vinci, how do you say that in English? Da Vinci was a vegetarian. Did you know that, Alex? No, I he, didn't. He thought that killing another animal was like killing a human being. I read that. Wow. So is it accurate? So I think throughout history, there have always been people who would fight more for or have a different uh, point of view, different perspective. And we probably have all those people to thank for where we are today. And probably there will still be some disagreement um, in the future. Some people will think animals should be at our service and other people will think otherwise. But hopefully we're getting more and more civilized, hopefully, yes. Um, yes. as you know, humankind is, um, as, as the years are unfolding, hopefully. It can be maybe sometimes in, um, how do you say this? You know, I don't see what we say in French, like sometimes there are, um, you regress, but then, you know, you're on the right track, I hope. Yes, <laughs> yes. That, that hopefully humans will become kind. Yeah, well, we can dream. <laughs> yeah, we can dream big, <laughs> as Gold Canyon would say. We can dream big. So interest, interesting direction that the conversation has, has taken us this afternoon. So thank you, Taylor. Yeah. This was a, a very interesting afternoon. And as you write the next two chapters, we'll have to touch base again and and fill us in on what you have been discovering beyond. So because I think as you move from the stag hunt of the first chapter into mm -hmm. the performance in the second chapter, that that will probably bring us even closer to horses and how horses yeah. were regarded and trained. And then we'll definitely want to know more about what yeah. you're discovering. So really great. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Taylor. thank you guys. This is a really fun conversation. Thank you for listening. In the show notes for this episode, we've included links to the books Taylor referred to in this podcast. Go to equiosity.com to find them. And if you want to learn more about clicker training, please visit my website, theclickercenter.com. Next week, we're shifting gears yet again, and it's back to the sciences. But this time, we'll be bringing neuroscience more front and center as we have a conversation about play. Until next time, train well and have fun with your horses.